This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We do want to talk about startups. We want to talk about a lot of things, science and innovation and entrepreneurship, all at work at the New Jersey Innovation Institute and at VentureLink. Here with more on the work that NJIT is doing to really facilitate the startups coming out of uh, it into the real world. Dr. Don Sebastian, he's president of NJIT, New Jersey in- Innovation Institute, and he's here with us at NJIT at their Newark campus. So nice to talk with you. I told you, I, I was reading about your organization a little bit uh, last night. Tell us a little bit about for our audience kind of some of the work you're doing. Sure. So NGI is, is an unusual organization. We're a nonprofit created under the university and and the expression of the university's economic development mission, meaning what? We're a tech university. How do we help build a tech-based economy? Right? And having spent many years at this interface between university and industry, uh, as they say in the commercial, we know a lot of things because we've seen a lot of things. There are a lot of models that just don't work when we try to graft academic research onto the needs of industry. And so we've arrived at a model that really focuses on how can we begin to bring together companies that are birds of a feather, small companies, startups, entrepreneurs, faculty, students, whatever the source of the innovation is, in technology-specific clusters and help them not just grow with specialized facilities and coaching, but really make early-stage matches between the big companies who need them now as a source of innovation. We all grew up in the era of large-scale corporate R&D. All the great technology we know came out of Bell Labs and Sarnoff RCA Mm -hmm. Labs, GEC R&D. They go through the whole catalog of industry. Those enterprises have, to the large case, atrophied or even disappeared completely. And M&A has replaced R&D in many, many Hmm. industrial sectors. But then that's an inefficient process. You know, it's not like every tech these days can be done in the garage. Right. And you do wonder what's lost in the process yeah. with all of that R&D at those you know, big facilities going away. Someone's yeah. got to do it, right? right? Right. And if you're depending on the small guy to do it, there's only so much. You can do apps in right. your basement, right? Right. Yeah. And then you can you do, do some simple stuff. But when you get into nanotechnology, gene splicing, you know, AI, advanced AI and robotics, you can't do that as a one or two person operation in a, in a garage. Well, well, one of the things that we're obviously focused on throughout the course of this entire show and our visit here is the future of work and the future of jobs. But so much of that, it feels like, from your perspective, needs to be proactive rather than reactive. You need to be helping sort of create companies, but also certain types of companies and cultures that that sort of dictate uh, or help sort of shape the future of work, right? Yeah, yeah. And and if we don't do it, guess what? The rest of the world is organizing right. to do it, right? So whether it's China.com mm-hmm. or it's the Fraunhofer models in Germany, there are other places in which there are uh, very well-oiled public-private partnerships that try to help small, mid-sized, and emerging businesses come together and ultimately connect to the big OEMs and, and bring products to market. So for every one company that may be the next Apple that does start in the garage, there are probably a thousand 
who have a better destiny if they were to develop into some product that could be bought by a larger company or be part of a supply chain. Don, I think so much of this and startups is about future growth for this country, right? Yeah. Uh, and if you take it, you know, certainly uh, future growth globally, if you take it on a global perspective. But I do think about, so where is the U.S. when it comes mm-hmm. to being leading as startups? I mean, I think everybody for so long was so jealous of Silicon Valley, yeah. but I feel like China's certainly on a mission and mm-hmm. there are other parts of the world too. So where is the U.S. Yeah. in that standard? Well, so I just came back from a week trade mission that the state sponsored Israel, Startup Nation. Yeah. Uh, Always a place for uh, innovation. Size of New Jersey, and you you look at the volume of of startups that go there. So I I think what's more important is how do we get them to the next phase, right, from startup into something that can be functional. You know, startup is a business plan, Mm -hmm. uh, angel investment. But what about actually producing enough for proof of concept. Does it make technical sense, but does it make dollars and cents? Right. How do you get into that pilot stage? That's the big barrier for many of these small companies. If you have a, a take drug, for example, a new pharmaceutical, if the big company says, well, come back when you've had clinical trials, well, phase three clinical trials, that could be a 10-year haul and a, even a multi-billion right. dollar investment, right? So what do we do in about a Don? Yeah. <laughs> well, so in each important <laughs> yeah, Don. industrial sector... We're trying to put together these expensive facilities. I'll use Cell and Gene, for example. We've invested in creating a, a pilot manufacturing facility, a sterile manufacturing. It's called CGMP. Right. We're inventors of these next generation of CAR-T and gene splicing type technologies can come and create, produce uh, clinical trial right. lots. Right? And, and at the same time, the big companies are coming for us to access the same thing. Why? Right. Because these are pivots. This is another important thing. Most of our anchor industries are facing true disruptive technology threats. And either they're going to figure out how to become their own disruptor or they're going to go the way of the gas company when, when uh, Edison strung up electric lights. Just got about a minute left. So what's a success yeah. story? So, so uh, this, this model is emerging. I think in healthcare IT space, Really wonderful example where we began in this transformation of digital health about 10 years ago when uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act mm-hmm. created funding to create uh, a transformation of doctors from paper to electronic medical records and the technology to interconnect. In that context, we transformed 7,000 physicians here in the state and then went on to show oh, geez, $175 million a year in, in cost savings by using that technology to achieve uh, outcomes-driven healthcare delivery. Now we run the state's healthcare information exchange, and with that, that's attracted, right? So that's the, the honey that attracts the bears. Yeah, right. yeah. We, we brought in a lot of small companies who want to plug into that infrastructure, and we've right. shown that we can then do the business coaching specific to that industry that's helped them grow uh, as, as small enterprises into thriving companies. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and for having us here uh, in Newark. Dr. Don Sebastian, president of the New Jersey Innovation Institute, uh, here on the campus of NJIT in Newark. NJII, I think I might have said NJIT yeah. well, a couple yeah, times before. The president of NJIT will get angry about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have some N-J-I-I. president on president <laughs> violence. Sorry right. about that. I may find a pink slip in an envelope when I get back to my office. <laughs> Thanks so much for you. the opportunity to talk. Technology and innovation, man, they are impacting just about everything in our world, whether at home, at work, and at play. At work is one that is garnering more attention thanks to a lot of different technologies. And someone who knows about that is Robert Cohen. He's vice president of global R&D and chief technology officer at Stryker Joint Replacement, graduate of NJIT. Uh, and so we want to bring him in and talk a little bit about how innovations are changing how we work. He's joining us on site here at NJIT. Nice to see you again. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm a proud NJIT alum. Yeah, is this you like are. old home? 
film week? Are you like sort of like, you know, walking through and be like, oh, I remember that place. Picking up some t-shirts and yeah. sweatshirts. <laughs> no comments. <laughs> nice. So t- I feel like there's more momentum when it comes to technology innovation impacting the workforce. workforce. And I don't know whether it's because all of a sudden AI is picking up some speed. Tell me how you see it. Well, actually, between AI, between connectivity, if you really look at at, at a, a division that I represent, like a striker, where we do total hips and total knees, right? You know, we're trying still to improve patient outcomes, make patients return to work faster, mm-hmm. have patients leave an operating room, manage expectations, patient satisfied, remove their osteoarthritis, but to get them back to a normal level of function. So innovation needs to be strong. And we're living in a global world right now, and that works for R&D as well. So And necessary for R&D globally. Absolutely. Like, it's got to be a global take, does if, it not? Oh, absolutely. If you yeah. look at the innovation across the United States, by the way, where you have a geography difference, you go to go to where the talent is. So whether it's in Australia, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in Europe, it's really the combination. And as you look for this technology and you look at where the people are who are smart, the universities that, that dwell upon this, you want to go where they are. You want a connectivity, and connectivity will allow a rate of innovation that incorporates that technology. And so does that change not just how you hire, but also once people are on board, sort of how they work, where they are? Like, play play it out for us. Right. So if you're to, to go after, let's say, a new technology. So let's use your, your augmented reality yeah. example, right, or artificial intelligence. There are universities, by the way, such as NJIT, that, that focus on that. Now, that labor force may be local to that college. Mm-hmm. For me to say, hey, labor force, uh, you're a university in Germany. You come to northern Bergen County, New Jersey. The likelihood of that may not be all that great. But if you really think about it, why can't people feel that they're all working together? Why can't through video conferencing, through augmented reality, through all the, the computer simulation and that mm-hmm. power, that can merge people together in ways that never could before? Well, I think about the medical community. So does that mean, I mean, maybe we're already doing it, that you could have an expert surgeon in Australia who operates robotically, possibly, on somebody in New York? I mean, can we get, you know, I don't know if it's there yet. Is that where we're going? Where's no, the, it all going? Yeah, they're, they're, we'll, maybe the world gets there eventually, but, but I don't think we're there right now. So we're not practicing medicine. So we will get more data. But the purpose right now of a company like Stryker to gain more data is to make that surgeon smarter about that patient. The mm-hmm. more data we can help give that surgeon on that individual patient that's unique to that patient, we will win. But the data can come from many places. So why don't we look at, say say, large medical centers that are well-known, right. and why don't we capture the way they do orthopedic surgery? Why don't we learn from those surgeons, their technique, their approach, where they place an implant, how they do physical therapy, when their patients go back to work, what's their rehab procedure? Right. And now we could track patients through artificial intelligence, right. through data input, like never before. Well, and that means the pool of patients right, gets bigger, right? Because you can share information with everybody who's doing a particular procedure or dealing with a certain implant, correct? Well, so as striker with robotic surgery, if you really think about it, we're sitting here now and we're analyzing CT scans on last year, over 120,000 patients. Right. And we're check- checking to see what their operative condition was when they returned to work, what their pharmaceutical use was, right, physical right. therapy, patient satisfaction. You can now pool data in massive quantities that you never could before, stratify that data. So let me give you an example. If you're a 64-year-old woman and your BMI of 34 with rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. what's the best implant for you? Now we can help answer that question. Right. 
should you go to a hospital home from the hospital the same day or should you stay in the hospital for four days? What is your expectation for when you return to work? When will you walk upstairs better? When will you get out of a car better? Right. All right. So let's talk about in the minute or so we have left. Let's talk about the patient side of this because a lot of people listening, watching, they're probably your current customers or future customers. Let's be honest. Like this is something I hang out with a bunch of runners and, you know, we're of a certain age. And like this is the sort of thing that, you know, is very relevant uh, to folks going forward. Tell us about the market out there right now. So the market right now, the patient's expectations have changed so much in the last 10 years. Yeah. No longer do people not want to play golf. No longer do they not want to walk in the mall. No longer do they want to have have pain and be staying home six months after surgery. They want to be able to walk faster. They want to return to a normal sense of quality of life. Right. That's a higher and higher expectations. Robotic assisted surgery allows us to do that. But eventually we will learn in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients across the globe with digital health and be able to look at that data and make recommendations on patient care right. and mm-hmm. implants like never before. Customization it's, too, right? It's exciting. Yeah. It's very exciting. cool stuff. Um, thank you, thank you so much to come by. Thank you. Are you right. thinking about like a, a knee replacement or not something? Yet. Or hip plate? Not yeah. yet, but I just, I'm, I'm looking down the road. <laughs> looking down the road. Want to keep running. All right, Robert Cohen, Chief Technology Officer of the Joint Replacement Division over at Stryker, and as he pointed out, proud alum of this fine institution. Teach your children well. All right, our next guest, we love talking to him. And if you're talking about science and technology, you've got to be talking to Dean Kamen. He is the founder of First for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. Joining us on the phone from Manchester, New Hampshire. Dean, uh, Carol and I were talking before we came on about the last time you visited us in New York City. You brought that amazing... The rugged uh, terrain robotic wheelchair. It was so cool. So So great to catch up with you. It's great to be back with you. And since I saw you last, we delivered four of those machines to a couple of or a few incredible Americans, including Medal of Honor recipients that left their legs in places wow. like Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, one of the early ones in Vietnam. And we're changing their lives. And it's great. That's amazing. Congratulations. Well, we look forward to catching up with you the next time you're in New York City. Uh, But let's talk about STEM education right now. That's the core of everything we're talking about when we think about the future of work. It starts with uh, education. Uh, Tell us what you are working on right now in 2020 that will soon sort of be making its way through the educational system. So there's two paths for that. In my day job, as you know, I build medical equipment, and we just received, believe it or not, another grant in excess of $50 million from Health and Human Services to accelerate the pace at which we're building the core technologies to manufacture replacement human organs, uh, which would be a huge win for patients that need chronic care like dialysis because their kidneys don't work or insulin pumps because their pancreas doesn't work. And since I do pumps and dialysis machines, I can't wait to put myself out of all those businesses by manufacturing the organs to replace replace them. Uh, but by the way, the theme here is I already have 800 engineers on all these projects, and my little company has got 100 open positions. So as you know, everything but my day job uh, consumes first. <laughs> And, uh, and at first, we're trying to create the next generation uh, of the workforce that will solve the problems we're all worried about today, whether it's manufacturing organs, 
solving the healthcare system, solving the, the global warming issues with better ways to make, use, transport, store energy, you name it. There are almost an unlimited number of incredibly important problems that need to be solved. They all need to be solved by a generation of people that have better technologies than the one we're leaving them with. And the only way we're going to get there is to dramatically increase the number of kids that have the skill sets and the ambition and the, the, the judgment and the courage to go and do bold new things with technology to solve these problems. Uh, I can also tell you... Well, Dean came in... Go ahead. No, 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 please finish, please finish. I I, I was going to say that I listened to some, I must say, I don't want to insult anybody, but some silly people that seem to think there's a credible debate about whether science and technology and engineering and robotics are going to eliminate jobs. I wonder if those people are around, you know... 100 years ago or 200 years ago when the steam engine came around or when the first, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bulldozer was built saying, oh, my God, that bulldozer can do the job of 100 ditch diggers. That machine's going to put everybody out of work. Well, actually, it'll take work away from the people that are doing backbreaking work. They'll have a limited time in their life to do it. It's not a fun job. It's a dangerous job. It's a boring job. It's a low-paying job. But the idea that the... The, the caterpillar, the, the, the bulldozer would do the work of all the then ditch diggers and therefore there'd be no work for them. No. Once you raise the bar and you can make that many more holes, you can move that much more stuff, you just build superhighways, not just little houses. And every single technology right. ever developed creates way more jobs than it eliminates because it creates way more opportunities for everybody to share a better standard of living. Dean, just got about 40 seconds. We are sitting, we're at NJIT. I'm, Jason and I are in a, a room full of students who are studying engineering, science, technology. Given that 65% of students entering school today will work in jobs that don't currently exist, you got 40 seconds. What's your advice to these students? My advice to them is forget about learning what's in the textbook today about solving today's problems. By the time they graduate, those problems will be solved. But don't worry. There'll be new, better, more exciting problems that have more pressing needs to be solved. The world is moving so quickly now that education has to be preparing you to learn how to learn and relearn and stay current. And kids that have those skill sets will never have a shortage of opportunities and careers. But kids that don't learn how to learn and don't learn how to embrace technology are going to be under the bus, right. not on it, period. Being right. nimble, that's what's important. Dean Kamen, thank you so much. Founder of FIRST, uh, the robotics competitions that he does to encourage girls, boys at all ages to be involved in STEM is just remarkable. Really wonderful to see. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everyone. This is a special hour uh, of Bloomberg Business Week. In the next 60 minutes, live from NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology. We are also streaming on YouTube. And we're focusing on the future of work because there's so many different things going on. And I think a lot of folks who are filled with a room of students here at NJIT wondering about, you know, what will work look like? What kind of jobs will be needed? And our guest for the hour, Marcus Weldon, he's president of Bell Labs and corporate chief technology officer at Nokia. Also, Virginie Maillard, who is head of corporate technology for the U.S. at the German engineering and manufacturing giant, you know them, Siemens. She also heads up uh, the global research activities of Siemens, head of technology, field simulation, and digital twin. I had to actually look up and 
understand what digital, digital twin, twin is one of the coolest things that we're going to talk about today. I love this. Right love now. this, love this. And Joe Militich, he's Senior Vice President of R&D at Merck, former Senior Vice President of R&D at Amgen. So what's really wonderful about this panel up here is that look, they're looking at technology innovation, what it means for the workforce in uh, some different perspectives. So first up... Well, can what? I just say, I'm yes. also excited to have all these students in the room because they're going to keep us honest. Yes. Uh, by, you know, we're going to look out and see if they're paying attention or not. Yeah, and yeah, if yeah. it gets boring, uh, they're going to flag and they're going to start waving their hands. You can shout out things to us, shout too. Out, like, okay. be more interesting. Be anyway. more interesting. Yeah. All right. um, no, it's going to be very interesting. And I want to start with, I think, talking about the technologies that really are front and center for you. And, you know, Marcus, let me start with you. Um, what are the technologies that you guys are really spending a lot of time on, knowing that it's going to change your industry and potentially change the types of jobs you're going to need in that's, the future? That's a great question. I mean... Uh, we were in a weird business because we're in the networking business. So mm -hmm. to some extent, our job is to connect all the technologies. And because of the way things become interconnected, we have a role in all of them. So the digital twin concept we talked about earlier, we think about how to create digital twins. Why would we do that? Because that seems like more of a Siemens thing. But of course, part of digital twinning is getting the information in and out of that digital twin over a network. And then the outcome of digital twin is to move a robot. So we have to think about robot moving, and it's all because we're sort of the fabric company, if you like. I think it's very New Jersey to be in, in fabrics, but we're the networking <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're the networking fabric, and that's 5G. You've heard a lot about 5G from right. everyone. The current we're waiting, we're waiting, we're, we're waiting, 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 waiting. Not waiting as long as if it, uh, as when it was LTE because it's faster download speeds. That's my that's, <laughs> that's my 5G joke. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm bummed. Yeah, yeah, Try yeah, the deal. Thanks. <laughs> but no, uh, the next version of 5G is all about industrial. So that's the thing that people don't realize is 5G today is about faster consumer. Uh, but uh, the next version has lots of features built in for industrials, so it becomes the fabric of industrials, right. which then allows you to digital twin and control robots and, and control things remotely and do remote teaching and, 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 and instruction and all sorts of interesting things. So for us, we see ourselves as building fabric technologies that connect to all the other technologies. So we are thinking robotics, we are thinking AI, we do think 5G, we think all sorts of interesting thoughts and invent at Bell Labs. All right, so one of the other things New Jersey is known for is the pharmaceutical business. We're gonna to get to that uh, in just a second, but I don't wanna to get too far from this concept of digital digital twin. So cool. This is probably something that the students are like, yeah, we know what that is, but like, I don't know as much. Do about you all what know it what it is? No. Oh, all right. We're going to do some educating here. All right. Tell us what it is. I don't know why. I was pretty sure you will ask the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's ready. So I have a short version. Very simple. It's, the digital twin is a virtual replica of, of, a, uh, of a physical phen phenomena or physical uh, set whatever machine or a process. This is a, a very simple definition. Now, beyond of that, basically, is to connect the physics to, to, the, to the simulation and to interact each other. For example, with a model, you can predict and you can simulate, and you can send this information to the machine, and the machine can collect some data, for example, with sensors, right. and send this information to the simulation. And the full concept We're is gonna, called a simulator. They're, they're telling me, put the, put the machine closer to your mouth. So I'm gonna be, <laughs> I'm gonna be not quite that digital twin, but I wanna move it in, because we wanna hear what you're saying. Go ahead. Yeah. So 
as a, as a conclusion, the uh, digital twin is a, the, the full concept of physical uh, a set, a right. machine, for example, and is a virtual replica, the model or the simulation associated to the machine, and they interact each other, sending, for example, uh, predicted uh, data to mm -hmm. the machine, and machine sending uh, measured data to the simulation. And but Virginia, I have to say my version of Digital Twin is of the entire physical world. Yeah. So you would see your world like a game. Yeah. So if you think of it as a massive game world that you enter, but it's actually your physical world and you can explore it and you can ask questions of it because it has all the answers. And then you can experiment with uh, what ifs. Right, because you can ask the digital twin to simulate a scenario, which is why Siemens and others you know, really like this, is you can explore conditions that otherwise would destroy the physical thing. And so you can do very interesting things. But for the students here, it's sort of like a big game, but of the real world. Yeah. That's, uh, I think, what, how I think of digital mm. twins. So what is interesting in, in Siemens is, uh, you know, it's an old company of one... Uh, 170 plus year uh, old yeah, company. Yeah. 170 um, years, wow. Well, well known in uh, industrial manufacturing. And uh, more recently, he's also a big player in a software uh, and provider. And that's why what is interesting in Siemens, we have this knowledge of manufacturing and uh, machines and process. And we have also the, the simulation and the software right. available. And now we are able to connect and to combine the two physical and uh, virtual worlds to, to, to propose uh, new tools. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, a special edition here live in Newark at NJIT. I want to jump right back in with Joe Militich. He's over uh, at Merck. Relatively new job, I think, uh, for you. What's the coolest uh, technology you're looking at right now? Uh, there are a lot of them, so yeah. I'm gonna, this is a hard choice, but I'll, but I'll give you one. So the Nobel Prize was given for chemistry in 2018 for biocatalysis. Which so, is what? So, okay. So first of all, um, when we, we, look for, we look for ways that you can modulate human disease with, with drugs, with new medicines. Right. A lot of times they're chemicals. They're made synthetically. But the more complex molecule we want to make, the harder it is to put together because most chemistry actually can make two or three different kinds of the same molecule, and then you have to sort them all out at the end. It's a big purification process. But, but inside the human body, inside all living things, we have enzymes, catalysts. These are proteins, mostly. They have a few exceptions, but mostly proteins that actually bring things together and then make the thing you want out of them and they do it with very little waste, and they do it at high efficiency, and they're catalytic. They do it over and over again. So what we've been able to do recently is make much more complicated chemical structures, right. but use biocatalysis. We've been able to invent enzymes that never existed before because of a convergence of many technologies that make it possible for us to actually start with a certain kind of enzyme and change it into something we wanted to do specifically for a specific reaction. Just, it's amazing. So 20 seconds, so what does that mean in terms of our world? It means that we can invent better medicines faster and we can make them cheaper and we can make them greener at, with very little waste, very little at very little uh, impact on the environment. So a win -win. And that's very important in yeah. this local I was thinking area. a win-win on so many different levels, right? Everywhere. To see that. You are listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week live from NJIT here 
in Newark. We're having a conversation about the future of work. And part of understanding the future of work is understanding where science is going, what the jobs are going to be, and what the aspirations are for this next generation of technology. Joe Militich, I want to put this question to you. You're the senior VP over at R&D over at Merck, uh, local company. And I do wonder uh, what's going on in the world, in, in terms of disease biology. We were talking about this during a break, and I'm so intrigued by what that actually means. So I've been a student of human disease biology for my whole career. And the, the, the essential problem we have is we want to understand what goes wrong when people develop a disease, and then we want to figure out something we can do to modulate that, some medicine or some vaccine we can give that will modulate the human disease. But the problem is we don't know as much as we would like to know. I can tell you, during my career, we know three orders of magnitude more about Mm. human biology than we did at the start, and it's not even a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a percent of enough. We're incredibly you're not that old. Uh, You're right, I'm not that old. (laughs) You're only as old as you feel, so I'm not old at all. Um, But here's here's the exciting part. The the exciting part is because of a convergence of many different things, we can now, it's now possible to study human disease biology with a resolution and with a continuity that's never before been imaginable. Now, we haven't cashed in on it yet, but you can feel it coming. So think about it. In the past, if we wanted to know something about a human disease, we relied on a patient going to a healthcare provider and telling them once a month or once a week about things. Now you can know everything continuously if you do it ethically and if you do it in in an informed way. You can understand not what a disease looks like at a doctor's visit every few weeks or months. You can understand what's going on continuously, what the patterns look like. If you want to actually take a sample from a patient, with consent, of course, and if you want to analyze it, you can analyze it with a depth of resolution down to finding out what's going on in single cells inside each tissue. You can understand it with a depth and complexity that was never imaginable even just even just a decade ago. I have to think you know? this is something you're seeing, Virginia, that, you know, yeah. because of the, the, the equipment and, and all the, the research that you guys are doing. I, I can't tell exactly the same story, but in a factory, for example, the robots and the, uh, or, uh, artificial intelligence are bringing to us more safe, safety uh, environment, uh, higher quality, maybe sometime uh, uh, quick, quick execution of the task. And at the same time, the human will be dedicated to elevated uh, tasks. They will be maybe in charge of the logistic, programming the robots. That's why uh, the segmentation of the task uh, in, in factory will, will be different in the future. But definitely the robots and the AI are going to bring us a higher quality and at the same time giving the human the possibility to have elevated uh, roles. Well, this is what's interesting, and and Marcus, I want you to come in on this, because I feel like we've written about this a lot in Business Week magazine, this whole idea of it's not robots taking over for humans, but you're going to see man and machine kind of working much more closely than ever before. Well said. That was actually my punchline. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm nice job. Sorry, I, I've had a Oh, yeah, cold. we touched. All right. Oh, boy. Anti- uh, anybody yeah. have antibiotics? Yeah. Uh, no, but, but, but that but collaboration. Right. Yeah, so there's a... Well, we, we look at this a, a lot. Uh, our view of the future of work is it's man and machine, or woman and machine in perfect harmony. Yeah. Uh, and, and digital twinning is a way to create a harmony between them, because think of it, the machine, the software system or the AI system, 
has a view of the world. The human has the same view of the world, and they can interact in that world. That's the point of a digital twin. They can sort of experiment and interact with each other. So that perfect harmony does a bunch of really interesting things. It increases productivity. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, what our problem is today, and we've invented all these great technologies, but to some extent they distract us more than they help us. Meaning what? Like why? We are deluged by data that you don't know what to do with, or social media, mm -hmm. or reality TV, not Bloomberg. That's that's credible, yeah, positive, yeah, high-quality information. <laughs> it's just life-enhancing. It's life-enhancing really in, yeah. in all forms. Yeah, but you're right. There's a lot of static out there. Static. And the static, actually, we don't, we're not equipped as humans to deal with. So you can think of the, the role of the machines is actually to help us you know, wade through that static and that morass of data to create knowledge and understanding that we use to perform tasks more efficiently. And the key is we perform the tasks because humans are actually incredibly well adapted for physical world tasks. We have lived in the physical world. We know how it works. We know how to manipulate things much better than machines. For all the very clever robots you see out there on YouTube, they have been highly optimized to do human-like things. Right. Mm -hmm. But the human was already doing that thing. So uh, our view is that uh, it's about augmenting humans. Right. And you can think of a robot that you can control is, is your extension. Uh, AI system is your extension of your brain. All those things allow us to be better versions of ourselves that will actually work fewer hours, but more productively. And normally, more productively means higher wages, oddly enough. So fewer hours, higher wages means more leisure time. Leisure time, you tend to do things that are cognitive and, and cause you know, growth, and that makes you a better worker. So we've got this very positive feedback loop we see of humans, when they're augmented, actually work more productively in similar jobs that have been adapted right. by a role a machine takes. Well, and Joe, I mean, we do get this sense, and we were talking um, you know, with the senior executive at Stryker earlier, uh, this notion that machines can also you know, prevent humans from making... Mistakes. Mistakes. Yes. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. Like, so we can... We just got about 30 seconds. Okay. If you look at the pharmaceutical industry, we need our factories to be more modern than they yeah. are. And that's eminently possible now for all the reasons that have been described and more. It, there's a convergence of all the things we've learned about what we want to control, that we can make things denser, safer, smaller, more productive, more unit pr productivity per time. All okay. right. You guys are going to stick with us? Yes. I, I was yes. looking at yeah. Definitely, I think uh, human and machines yeah. are collaborating each other and uh, complementing each other. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, we're live in front of a room full of students here at NJIT uh, at their campus in Newark, New Jersey. We have a great panel. Marcus Weldon is president of Bell Labs, corporate chief technology officer at Nokia. Virginie Maillard, she is head of corporate technology for the U.S. at Siemens. And then we have Joe Militich, he's senior vice president of R&D at Merck. So here we've been talking about some of the different technologies, whether it's 5G, whether it's AI, digital twins, um, you know, what does that mean for the type of workers that are going to be needed in the future? So, Marcus, let me start with you. What do you, what do you look for when you want to hire somebody? Super smart people. Uh, so NGIT grads, uh, you are uh, qualified. Now, what we actually <laughs> look for is um, people who are willing to adapt to changing realities. So one of the things we really think is that... Uh, the role of digital twins and augmentation and, and intelligent assistance will be to help you do whatever it is you do better. But it, therefore, you will be expected to do more things. So instead of getting an education that is linear, uh, like I did, and, and then I go and do a job and I do that job forever, uh, I think you'll be expected to be adaptive, maybe on a weekly or 
uh, maybe even daily basis, because you'll be augmented with the task will be taught to you or sort of on the fly. Uh, either because you put a headset on or somewhere you're augmented, and you'll be able to do many more things because you'll learn those things on the fly with the information you need, rather than having to be pre-trained on that thing. So you're going to have to sort of be agile and adaptive, but that sounds like an awful lot of fun, as Joe said, that my job will be to be adaptive right. Right. To, to, to any changing reality, and I'll be well paid for that. Yeah. Yes. Go, go ahead, Virginie. Yes. Uh, in Siemens, we are looking also for smart people, but we also believe in the diversity right. of education. Whoever wants dumb people, could you just stand <laughs> yeah. up in the room? I just want to know who that is. No, I'm just but kidding. But we believe in the, in the diversity of education. Because yeah. We, we believe that uh, um, in, in different um, paths of education, for example, apprenticeship or community college, mm. or also people coming back uh, to education after having uh, another experience in their life. And uh, it could, they could bring to us an experience uh, they, they, we need in terms of Very uh, good point. diversity. I love this idea of diversity. And you know, um, Joe, come on in on this, because I do think we increasingly understand that a company performs better when their boards are diversified, their senior talent, and really all along in terms of their work. For so, uh, tell me how that is important to you guys, and what else you're looking for. Yeah, so, I, I'll just echo the sentiments on diversity. But yeah. what I think I'd really like to reinforce is is the comment about the fact that we can't think of education the same way. It's going to be continuous and forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, it, it, you can't. We, we have lots of different skill sets we depend on to to discover and invent and develop a new drug and get it to market. They used to be in silos. You'd, you'd be a specialist. You'd get good at it. So you'd need 100 different specialties. We still need those. We still need that depth of expertise. But we also have to have people who can understand across the whole spectrum and integrate it. Because if you don't integrate it, you don't see the opportunities when convergence is right. possible. I agree with that, So Joe. you really have to really, really push on that. And that's where diversity comes in for us. Exactly. It's a spectrum function. Mm -hmm. The more spectrum of disciplines and genders and nationalities and cultures and educational backgrounds, broader spectrum to look at the problem, all equally able to sort of solve it because they're helped in, right. in the way they need to be helped. It's Diversity sort of happens as a catalyst for all of this, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a really good point. And, and the thing that I think is the most important thing is just being intellectually curious, sure. relentlessly curious about how everything works, everything, that's, everything that could touch what you touch. I always say that about journalism. I think it's just yeah. you have to be curious yeah. about the world and stuff. Go ahead, Virginia. Yes. Uh, in Timmons, we, we believe in the, in the education program for our workforce. In in US we have uh, 50,000 US employees and we spend 50 million every year to in education program to train them and to to uh, reskill them in in the new technologies. This is very important. To and mention. that's interesting too. Go ahead, Jason. No, go please. ahead. No, but I think there's been a debate about what's the corporate responsibility in re-educating the workforce to make sure that they have the workers, and it sounds like obviously Siemens sees it as being important. Yeah, we do too. But I, I think in the for the students in the yeah. room, what I would say is. They will be live trained, and that's what's the right. really interesting so cool. change. Because today you have to take courses in a rather formalized way, even though they're online, they're still sort of courses. Uh, but what if I could learn the task minutes before I have to perform it? Right. right. So I think that's the really interesting change in the future, and it will be perfect knowledge, not the noise we were talking about. Yeah, earlier. I mean, I do wonder about in 30 seconds, sort of the delivery system to some extent of education, right? Yeah. Well, certainly it, it needs to be real world, kind yeah. of in in real time. But there's another big component we need, 
And that's that there's a lot of challenge. So we look at data sets that are as diverse as you can yeah. possibly imagine. And they're not in common formats. So we need, a, we need a whole cadre of data scientists, too, who can work with biologists and with chemists right. and with you know, microbiologists, can with toxicologists. Can speak that common language. Yeah. You know, but, but they have to be able to actually get to the data. Right. Because putting it in a data lake isn't good enough. We are here at NJIT. Marcus Weldon, Virginie Maillard, and Joe Militich still with us. And I want to quickly pick up on this theme of sort of diversity of thought, but how you get there. Joe, like, how do you institute that sort of thing, or how do you train people to, to think like that? I think you have to create the right environment, mm -hmm. the right work environment. It, it, it involves everything from facilities to who you hire to what you make accessible. But you know it's working when people are so excited because they're learning new mm. things and they feel that they're going to have an impact. You, you know you've got it, and, and it's, it's, not, it's not something you can necessarily make perfectly formulaic. But when people are learning, they tell you. When people stop, stop telling you that they're working long hours and they tell you that they can't wait to get to right. work, that's when you know. You have to have that kind of a learning environment all the time. So how do you institute it at uh, Siemens? We, we strongly believe that diversity brings uh, a value to the mm -hmm. company. It's about the competitivity. If you play a soccer game with uh, five uh, players, mm. uh, you have less chances than with 11 players. Right. That's why we have to include all the people uh, out of the game today and uh, to propose them some uh, education program to right. join us and to bring the experience, the background. Right. And uh, it's, uh, it's about the diversity also of, uh, of the mindset. And Marcus, just 30 seconds here. We are uh, completely background blind, uh, oddly enough, meaning it really is if, if you have the enthusiasm, the curiosity, like you said, Carol, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, a thirst for new knowledge, uh, the, the rest just happens, right? Because it's like you said, Virginie, we look at the largest population of people who fit that criteria, and that naturally is everyone. Yeah. Uh, so we, we never limit it by any category. Uh, it's all categories in to be the most uh, sort of thriving population. You are listening to Bloomberg this week live from MJIT. It's a special edition. We're focusing on the future of work. Our guest, Joe Militich, he is Senior Vice President of R&D at Merck. Virginie Maillard, she is the Head of Corporate Technology for the U.S. at Siemens. And Marcus Weldon, President of Bell Labs and Corporate Chief Technology Officer at Nokia. We had a great question uh, from the audience here, one of the students Posing this to, to the panel, we talk a lot about AI and automation. We talk a lot about sort of being intellectually curious, but we do worry, I think we should worry, uh, about those who are left behind uh, to some extent who might not have the capability, the opportunity to, to play at that, uh, at that higher level. What do you make of that, Virginie? I like this question because it makes me the opportunity to, to tell you that Sometimes you can overcome this, uh, this um, point. We have, for example, in Siemens, a low-code platform called Mendix, we acquired two years ago. And this platform allows you to create apps without knowing how to code it. It's, uh, you have just to know maybe how to solve a problem, how to have a common sense, and then the platform is coding for you and create the, the app for you. And this is an example of how we can integrate this kind of uh, workforce, bringing to us an experience from the, from the shop floor uh, with, a, with a good uh, technical knowledge without knowing how to code. You know, we like this question. I think it's an excellent question because actually one of the great equalizers of 
AI and augmentation is it augments the people who know less, perhaps more than augments the people who know more. Mm. So it's actually meant to level the playing field so everyone can do their task, whatever it is better. And in fact, the tasks that are hardest to replicate uh, with a machine of physical tasks. So I would argue what it does is, in future, physical task performance will be more human, augmented with an assistant that tells you what you need to know. Even if you didn't know the math or the engineering, right. it'll be telling you how to do it in a way that helps you. You may not have had the formal education. So I think it's a, it's a really bright future for leveling things. Well, does it also mean then going forward that you don't have to know so much math or so much science going forward? That would be a huge sure. relief for me. I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. No, but I do wonder about that, Jeff. So I think it will augment it. Because, yeah. be, because whatever level you start at, you can get... 10 times better in a much shorter period of time. Right. And there's almost no limit of questions that I can think to ask. So I don't see the future getting limited. I, the, the only thing that's going to limit us is whether or not we can sustain it economically and all, but, but it's not actually a, a technical or a scientific limitation anymore. Well, the future is unbounded. We I mean, can go everywhere. But, but also level. Yeah. It's yeah. level and unbounded, which is yeah. sort of really interesting. Well, and I just think about something as silly as Siri or some of the home devices, right, that you can ask so much information because there's so much data fed into it. Think about, you know, how much you can know automatically yeah. it, it, and what you can do with it. Remember when we had to look stuff up in books? Remember well, encyclopedias? I don't so know. Books, we had one in my house. I had the encyclopedia. <laughs> go to a library. Yeah, or go to a library or pick up a phone or something like that. All right, so in the few minutes uh, that we have left, you know, we also want to talk about, especially since we're at a top university that's obviously thinking very aggressively and ambitiously, and yet we have an educational system that maybe right. uh, might be a little sclerotic, as they say, and uh, not so quick to change. What's the piece of advice that you guys would give to universities or uh, higher education institutions out there? And, I think that, and the great question was, how can industry and education partner to create these lifelong partnerships that are going to be needed in terms of education? Yeah, it's a great uh, question. I, I think uh, we saw Dr. Bloom earlier yeah. saying a lot of really good things about maker spaces, mm -hmm. and maker spaces in generally will be involving types of equipment that industrials will be using. So I think collaborations between places like NGIT and industry are more naturally mm -hmm. happening because the types of equipment that used to be massive and industrial, now you can, because of course Moore's Law, you can now get in a small form factor, you can have in university. And then it's just a case of coupling the two by some programs. We have summer internships, we hire a lot of graduates from the New Jersey area, but they've been working on systems and machines and tools that we would also use. But do you yeah. see sort of institutions sort of separating a little bit in the sense that like if you can't keep up, if you can't be as progressive, maybe you're not going to exist. But, but I think the most important thing is to teach students how to ask questions. Yeah. That's the most important mm. thing, how to problem solve. Mm -hmm. What are the right questions to ask? How do you actually delve in? And, to, and really to actually gain enough confidence doing that so that you're not afraid. And so that it doesn't seem intimidating. Because the tools will be there to get whatever information, whatever is possible. And then when you don't find the information, right. you know what you want to work on. Because that's where you've got to add value to the system. Ask the question, keep asking so, until you get the answers. Exactly. And so I think the major job of universities is actually teaching people that you can be curious mm -hmm. now, much more curious than you ever it's could very, before. Very well put. Uh, maybe we'd be a bit, a bit linear in book knowledge, yeah. Yeah. but we'd have to turn knowledge into curiosity again, I think. Mm -hmm. 
I think that the partnership between universities and companies are very important because we benefit each other from the academic knowledge, of course, mm -hmm. but the company can, can bring to the, to the college and uh, high schools uh, also a kind of uh, understanding of uh, what we need. And uh, for example, Siemens provides uh, some software to the high school to teach the, the, the kids right. and, to, to, and to show them what they can do with the software and how to design the parts and to, we, we provide also some equipment. Right. That's why it's very right. important. And that's what's interesting. You're finding it starting at younger and younger ages that you want to get into um, education and certainly have an impact. Folks, thank you so much. I mean, we certainly could have continued for um, a much, much, much longer time. So I just want to thank uh, our guests here on the panel. Marcus Weldon, President of Bell Labs, Corporate Chief Technology Officer at Nokia. Virginie Maillard, Head of Corporate Tech over uh, for the U.S. at Siemens, and then Joe Militich, he's Senior VP of R&D at Merck. So thank you both so much, and thank you to our audience as well. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.